ora koutou katoa, ngā mihi nui ki a koutou. Um, it's always a pleasure to be here, always, and um, love being with you guys. I feel like every time I come, there's a slightly different iteration on my relationship to Rose. Because I think <laughs> I used to just be Alison, and then I became um, Rose's boyfriend's mother, and now I'm Rose's fiance's mother. And... <laughs> Um, who knows, I, I will probably be Rose's husband's mother at some point. So um, it's really nice to, to be here, thanks for having me, and um, Rose gave me a bit of a, a brief, oops, we're having a few, a few admin problems here, we might just move this one over and have a backup. Right, we'll have that one too. We've got a lot of resources here, so I just need to make sure that there's space for them all. So yeah, so Rose has invited me to be part of your Led by the Spirit series, and she asked if I could talk about that in relation to my work at the prison. Um, and I listened to the talk from Paul Fletcher, which was a few weeks back, and um, he, I just want to kind of piggyback on that, because he looked at the Babylonian creation myth, and then kind of compared that with the Genesis 1 um, biblical creation story and he looked at the narratives that were told um, which say you know that you're worthless and um, and not to question those narratives and um, those kinds of narratives that he talked about in that Babylonian creation myth um, are very similar to the narratives that are very prevalent at prison. So my role at the prison, I guess essentially, is to bring an alternative narrative to the shame narrative, to bring an alternative narrative to narratives of hopelessness and despair, and to bring a narrative of truth where there's been distortion. And um, Interestingly, but not surprisingly, I think unhealthy and destructive narratives are actually alive and well out here in the community. This is not something that's just behind the wire at the prison. And so if we're talking about being led by the Spirit, I'm, I'm going to talk about some things that happen in the prison. In fact, the Spirit wants to heal um, our unworthiness, um, our, our unworthiness narratives, and, um, and those shame narratives, and set us free as well. So in actual fact, I can talk about the prison, but I think this stuff is equally relevant to us. It just looks a little bit different behind the wire. Um, I also want to just have a little bit of a disclaimer, because I will weave stories into this, but I find it increasingly difficult to tell prison stories. Just because as time goes on, I think... Um, you know, it's easy to tell the stories and they can be dramatic or shocking or sometimes really humorous, but in actual fact there's also a sensitivity around them and so um, I sometimes struggle to know how to tell the stories because there are always stories, but um, I want to do that really respectfully. Obviously I'm not going to use names and I'm certainly not going for shock value. Um, the other little disclaimer is I am choosing some good stories. I don't think you need to hear all the sh shocking stories and um, you know, you're not a young and we want to keep hope alive and um, <laughs> I don't want to kind of you know, make it too heavy but I think one of the dangers, because I'm only going to tell the truth, I don't embellish stories much as my reputation might be of, is one of a little bit of hyperbole. 
it's going to be absolute truth. But the thing is, when you tell a whole lot of good stories all at once, often it can make it sound really amazing. And then you think, oh my gosh, like everything, you know, you walk into prison and everything I touch turns to gold and it's all these incredible stories. And the reality is there is good stuff happening in the prison. But I'm going to tell you a little kind of snapshot of some good stories. And that's not what it is all the time. A lot of it is very ordinary and sometimes very hard. I'm going to take my watch off just so I... So, what I'm going to do is just, um, so Paul Fletcher looked at Genesis 1, and I'm going to traverse Genesis 1 to 3 today, and what I want to look at is how evil distorts our narratives and ultimately our relationships, okay? So I'm going to look at this hideous distortion of what evil does, weave in some prison stories, but then also connect that to our own story. So before we look at the text, I do want to just tell you two, um, well, a couple of led by the Spirit stories. One is just how I got to the prison in the first place. Um, so I, um, I never envisaged going to work in the prison. It wasn't something where, you know, when I was little, I said, when I grow up, I want to work at the prison. And I was um, actually overseas on sabbatical and um, saying, God, what's the next step for us? And um, had no idea what we were going to do. Martin and I were away having a lovely break. And I had this really crazy dream one night. And in the dream, um, there was a sundial and the children were walking all over the sundial. And they were saying... Um, which, what time is it? How can we read the sundial by looking at the light? And, um, you know, because the sun obviously reflects on the sundial and, and shows you what time it is. And that was that. Didn't really think anything more of it. Then the very next day, we were driving to this place. We leapt out. There was a sundial. And the kids jumped onto the sundial, and they did exactly what had happened in my dream. And I thought, whoa. And I felt like God spoke to me and said, I'm going to make it very, very clear where you're meant to be next. So it's like, okay, well, I'll look forward to it. And then, um, sorry, I've had a throat thing this week, and I'm a bit, I might need a glass of water at some point. Um, but, and then um, we got back from our trip overseas, and then, uh, oh no, we were, it's, we were in Cambodia, that's right, we were in Cambodia, and I was talking with someone, and he said, I'm reading a book you'd really enjoy, and it's about a guy who works in the prison, and I think you'd really enjoy it. And it was like I had this visceral reaction where my stomach almost turned over, and I felt like God said, that's where I want you to be. It was really, really clear. Got back home from sabbatical, and within a few days of being back, I'm looking at, I think it was the Anglican Taonga, and there was an advertised position to um, work in the prison. So I applied for it and got it. So um, that was that. Worked there. I remember the first day, this little voice in my head said, what on earth do you think you're doing here? You're the wrong person. And um, interestingly, when I was a teenager, someone had a prophetic word for me and said, you're going to be really surprised because you're going to end up working with the most unexpected people in the most unexpected situation, sharing the love of God. And I do feel that's probably what my position is there. Um, I've tried to leave a few times, and there was one time when I was feeling particularly over it, and um, I just said, God, I kind of need to know that I'm really meant to be staying, and, um, oh, thank you, Nigel. Um, and I, I, I thought, I, I just almost need a reminder that I'm meant to still be there, because it can take its toll. 
And I woke up one morning and I was off to a dio training day. And I said, God, I don't know how you're going to communicate this with me, but I just need to know whether I'm to stay or whether I'm to leave. But I was definitely erring on the leaving side. I went to a workshop and then you just had to pray for the person next to you. And this woman who I didn't even know just started praying for me and she said, I've just had a picture for you. I saw someone shooting an arrow and it hit the bullseye and God wants to say to you, don't make any changes in your life, you're in exactly the right place. So um, (laughs) prison, once you're in there, is often a hard place to get out of. So I haven't got parole yet, I'm still there. In terms of being led by the Spirit, or in fact led by um, in in the prison or led by the Spirit anywhere, I sort of feel like there's a macro piece, there's a big picture piece of the big narrative, and there's a micro piece, which is the detail. And the macro piece is anything that's on God's heart for humanity. um, You know, that's what God wants. God wants good things for for everybody, and that's a generalised thing. And so. The narrative that I bring is um, that Luke 4 passage. So the the big piece is um, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So the big picture piece, the macro piece of being led by the Spirit is just proclaiming what it is that is there to proclaim, to bring healing and hope, to bring emotional freedom, to bring justice for the oppressed, because God is a loving God. And so um, um, being led by the Spirit in the, in the macro sense is... Um, is kind of proclaiming God's desire for all people. But then there's the micro piece, which is being led by the Spirit to bring something that is specific to individuals. And so it'll be a particular outworking where God wants to touch an individual. And anything that we do that is being led by the Spirit in the micro sense is going to fit into God's bigger picture for humanity, obviously. So to give an example of that, I had this lovely experience. Um, I'll just call him Jay. I met this guy, Jay, and I worked with him for about five years in prison, but he was someone who had a real hopelessness about him and, and carried a real shame. He clearly didn't like himself, and he, um, he said to me, can you not use the word hope? I hate the word hope. He had really low self-image. So in the big sense, of course God wanted him to experience emotional healing and to know that he was loved. And I was about to see him one day, and I sat down to pray, and I prayed for him, and I saw a picture of a little brown rabbit. Now, our prison is infested with brown rabbits. They're everywhere, and they're a real pest. And you see them, and it's like, oh my gosh, you don't sort of think, oh, there's a cute little rabbit, because they're everywhere. And I felt like in this picture, God wanted me to say to him, you're not just any little brown rabbit, but you're special, and you're known. Now, that's quite a hard word to take to a Māori guy, that you're not just any brown rabbit. But I thought, no, I need to be faithful. So I said to him, um, um, I said, Jay, you know, I was praying for you, and I saw this picture of this brown rabbit, and he laughed. He goes, oh, so the Māori boy's a little brown rabbit. But anyway, and then, and then I said, I just felt like God wanted to say that, that you're not any one of them but that he loves you. And he said, did you know that I caught one of those brown rabbits and I took it in as a pet? 
And in the unit, he built a little hutch for it, and he used to share all his meals with it, and he said, the boys in the unit used to laugh at me and say, it's just a dumb brown rabbit. And he said, no, it's not. It's my little rabbit, and I care for it. And he used to go without some of his food to feed his little brown rabbit. Such a beautiful story, and he really responded to it. But the big picture is God wanted him to know that he's loved, but that kind of micro being led by the Spirit is where God can show us something that's particular for somebody that really speaks to their own situation. And he used to refer back to the brown rabbit quite a bit. So if we look at our text, it's got two parts. So this is um, also the, um, you know, the good Genesis before the fall and then after the fall. And just being clear, I'm not um, speaking from this as a literal story. It's highly allegorical. And so we sit in the Garden of Eden. God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for, <coughs> for, you, for you too. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Jump ahead a bit. We've got Adam and Eve. Adam and his Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. And then we look into Genesis 2. God plants a garden. There were trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, rivers and streams to water the earth. So we're in the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful image and I read it very quickly and I cut some, some bits out. But God is creative. God sees that it's good, and you've got that repetition of God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed it, and God saw that it was good. Blessed means, you know, bestowing goodness. Um, there was a sense of God's favor of a gift to bring happiness. We've got a real sense of generosity, because it says, I give you, I'm giving you this, and I'm giving you the land, and I'm giving you the animals, and I'm giving you dominion over the earth. Often if you ask someone, what was the very first command that God gave humanity? People will often say, well, it's don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that's what often people say um, to me. And, um, and in actual fact, the very first command that God gives is go and make babies. Go and have some fun. The first thing God says is be fruitful and multiply. The next thing that God says as a command, is you're free to eat from any tree. And in the Hebrew, the word eat is actually repeated twice. It's like eat, eat. Eat to your heart's content. And so you've got the word free. You're free to eat. So God's really affirming that glorious freedom and spaciousness, and God's saying eat abundantly. So we've got an image of God as generous, God is good, God blesses. And it also says, interestingly, about Adam and Eve, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, why on earth does the writer say they felt no shame? Why doesn't the writer say 
they were naked and they felt happy. They were naked and um, they felt confident. They were naked and they were having a good time. But no, they said they were naked and they felt no shame. And I think it's that juxtaposition between nakedness, which is about vulnerability, and the very opposite of vulnerability is shame. Shame is one of the most crippling human emotions. It's the complete antithesis um, of nakedness and vulnerability. So let's continue. We're in the Garden of Eden. Humans are happy. God is good. Now we've got the serpent coming on the scene. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we have the presence of evil in the guise of a snake. And notice how evil is crafty. And some translations use the word subtle, and I think that's really helpful, that evil actually is really subtle. It's not just brazenly obvious necessarily. And there are three catastrophic ruptures in the story that I've just read. Ruptures in relationship of humans to God, of humans in relation to themselves, and of humans amongst each other. So God, self, others. So I just sort of thought today, tonight, what I'm going to do is just unpack these three briefly and weave some story in. So um, evil strategy is to undermine relationship with God and to say to us, to say to Eve, did God really say? Evil subtly sows seeds of doubt. God's not really good. God doesn't really want the best for you. Actually, God's a liar because the enemy, the evil, um, the snake says, you will not certainly die. And the snake of evil throws Eve into confusion. And then notice how she responds. It's really interesting. When the snake comes to her and says, did God really say, she minimizes the positive command because God actually said, eat freely of whatever you like. And she turns round and she says, in verses 2 and 3, 
when she repeats what God said, she said, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. She doesn't say eat freely. So she kind of limits the eating to something slightly less good. And then she says, and you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. So she's actually added an extra negative in. Now that might not seem like that big a deal, but it's a, an interesting picture into how evil works. That a little seed of doubt is sown in our minds, and then it snowballs and it gathers momentum. So... Um, there's no checking of the facts. Isn't it interesting that Eve doesn't go, hang on a minute, that's not what God said. I might pop back and just check it out with God. Because God did say that it was best for us. No, 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 she doesn't go and check the facts. And certainly the snake doesn't want to check the facts. When Eve says, well, God says this, and the snake goes, nah, 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 God didn't. There's no checking of the facts. So she falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And suddenly there's a distorted narrative about God's goodness. So Eve and the snake opt to talk about God rather than to God. And that's quite a significant shift. In the prison context, God gets a lot of blame. Funnily enough, people's, in people's lives, like they feel so far from the abundance of the Garden of Eden. I have a little um, Bible study group, and it was actually the men that asked if we could have it. They pursued me and they said, look, can we have a group to talk about faith. And in that group is a representation of um, quite a few different gangs. We've got a couple of people from the mongrel mob, we've got a black power, we've got a no band, we've got a hell's angels. And they're a really lively bunch and they're full of questions. And they often kind of try and catch me out and they accuse God and they share a story and then they look at me and they say, so Alison, where was God when this happened? So-and-so was abused in state care, so where's God, God's goodness now? One day they said, why doesn't God just show up? Wouldn't it make it a whole lot easier if God just showed up and showed us that he was real? One day I was really brave and I said, well, God has shown up because I'm here. And they're all gang members. So I said, I'm one of God's patched members and I'm here. And then one of the guys looked at me and goes, good answer. I said, oh, <laughs> thanks, bro. We hit an all-time low in this group where I made a monumental mistake because one of the men recommended a book and he said, could we read this book, go chapter by chapter? I said, yeah, why not? I better not mention the name of the book because this is being recorded. But, um, And so I um, said to them, okay, just read the next chapter in the book before we next meet. I then went away and read the chapter and thought, oh my goodness, it had the most terrible things in it for a prison context, like your parents were specially chosen for you and they were the best possible parents you could have had. And I'm just thinking, this is really not helpful theology in a prison context. So I got back a little bit nervous and um, they were in a state. Um, they, um, one of the guys just, you know, really, really angry. And, and, you know, there we are looking at this chapter. And I said, sorry, boys, you know, there was some stuff in it that I don't know that I quite agree with. And then they weren't sure that a chaplain could agree with a, uh, disagree with a book that's in print because that seemed a little bit, you know, who was I to disagree? <laughs> but the group erupted. And one of the guys who I'll call Leo, he said to me, I, want to I wanted to kill God. And he just said, you know, I asked God one thing in my life. Only one, and he said, I just said, God, please, I love my children so much. Please don't take them before I go. I just want to be able to see this through. Then I go, but I don't want them to die before me. And then one of his children took his life. 
and he was absolutely devastated and was so, so angry at God and had nightmares about his son. He had terrible insomnia, anxiety and so much shame around being a bad dad. So that was one man in the group. Another guy in the group um, called Dee, he just said, I've tried so hard with God. I've left the gang, I pray, nothing happens. And just as he was about to be released, there was a whole lot of fresh charges laid on him. So he was in a really bad state. And then another guy would try and trap me with questions and, um, and say, well, where was God when I was in state care? Another guy would often cry in the group, so full of shame. And so there am I, trying to deal with this absolute shambles of everybody telling me their stories of woe and sort of look at me saying, so? So where was God then, eh? chaplain, and there's me, and I'm thinking, I'm meant to be here, kind of preaching good news to the poor, I'm meant to be led by the Spirit with these stories of awful pain, and um, the snake has a field day, I think, um, in their relationships with God, but at that moment, the snake can have a bit of a field day with me, because I'm sitting there thinking, God, <laughs> where are you? What are we going to do now? So, and... Um, and, I, and, I, and the snake will whisper to me, so why isn't God doing something? And, and that little voice in me, like, can I really trust God now? And, um, and, and so I'd go away and I prayed for this group and the chaos of all these stories. And I prayed earnestly and I did something that I've never done before. But I just contacted some really prayerful friends who often move in beautiful prophetic ways, and I just said, look, I've just got a list of boys, things are chaos in my group, didn't tell them anything about any of them, could you just pray for them? And so my friends faithfully prayed, and I didn't breach any confidence, I just gave them first names. And what happened following that is um, they prayed and they shared their words and pictures for each of these men. So I went back into the group and I said, okay boys, I've had some people praying for you, and it ended up that um, I said, do you want to hear? Do you want to hear what they, what they sensed? They felt like maybe God had a little message for you. And so Leo, the guy with the nightmares, um, he was the Hell's Angels guy. And, um, and the word for him, and he was the one that had said, God, please don't take my kids before me. The word for him was, while my friend was praying, he had this picture and he said, this guy can't sleep. And I feel the need to just pray for an angel to be at his bed. He's a Hell's Angel. So he prayed for this angel, and then he said, and this guy felt like he asked God for one thing. He asked him for bread, and he got given a stone. But God's saying, there's good things ahead for you. So I share that, and the boys go, oh my gosh, this guy has a sleeping disorder. He doesn't sleep. And it was like they were so excited. They said, that's really, really spot on. And then he had, obviously the group all knew that he'd asked God um, not to take his son. So there was this beautiful promise of good sleep and a positive angel and God wanting to give him good things. So Leo was in tears. And then we had the guy who'd had the fresh charges. And there was a beautiful picture for him that was so accurate. And he was so hopeless because he was thinking he was getting out. And he felt like a trapped animal. There was a picture for him. You're like a trapped tiger in a cage, desperate for freedom. And God's saying, there's hope. It's not hopeless. Then there was the guy in state care. And there was this beautiful vision for him. And it was this vision of him being um, joyful and playful on a beach. 
And then suddenly the woman who was praying for him um, broke down and cried, and she said, but something was robbed. He was robbed, but God's going to restore your joy. And this man was crying, so I got all these crying gang members around me, and he said, the last time I experienced joy was on a beach. He said, I know exactly that scene and when that was. And this beautiful picture just spoke into that. And then there was the other guy who was so full of shame, and the picture for him was, you're a man that smiles a lot, but there's so much self-doubt and shame behind the smile. So I've got these men all crying, and then we've got this little revival where they go, wow, God is so real. We remembered and I just thought it was such a lovely story of, of the, the enemy trying to rob and, and kind of sabotage the group, I guess. And then God just comes through. One of the men said he'd woken up that morning and just said, God, I actually really want you to show up. He said, I lay on my bed and nothing happened. And then he said, I came to this group and God's shown up this morning. So we sat round and we broke bread together and we had communion together. And the men were just going and telling everybody <laughs> about what God had done. One of them went and told his ACC counsellor. I think she thinks the chaplain is completely nuts. But um, it was beautiful how God took that horrible distortion of where was God and we had these men who felt freshly loved and remembered. So point one, evil seeks to undermine our relationship with God. Evil makes us doubt God's goodness. Point two, um, evil or the enemy wants us full of shame. And so we've had the God bit, now it's the us bit. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and evil kind of uses shame as its proxy. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they hide, they're afraid of God walking in the garden, and they're suddenly aware of their nakedness. And so that's where shame takes over. And when shame takes over for any of us, our image of self is distorted and we need to hide away, and vulnerability is a threat. And there's an interesting psychological principle that when bad stuff is done to us and awful feelings are evoked, often shame's neurobiological tendency is that I take the blame. So when something terrible happens, what a child tends to do is it's my fault that mum and dad broke up, it's my fault that mum got hidings or whatever. So obviously in a setting like prison, um, there's overrun, overrun with shame stories, but I'm not convinced that it's actually, well, it's not that different out here. I think shame cripples the church, shame cripples people everywhere. But in the prison, obviously, there's the look at me, I'm a total loser, and then shame hides behind, obviously, violence and drug use and abuse, and people carry blame for all sorts of things, deaths of loved ones and the fact that they're in prison and, and abuse. So being led by the Spirit is sometimes not this big grand thing of having the amazing picture for someone, it's just showing up. And it's listening attentively to their stories and it's helping people rediscover their made in the image of Godness. Rediscovering their belovedness. Discover a truthful narrative about their past. How are we going for time? Five, are we all right? We're sort of well through point two and then we just have a third point. I do want to share a beautiful story about God's commitment to lifting shame. Um, I worked with a man called Jim, and um, he was probably one of the most shame-based people I've ever met, and he had a long criminal record, 
and he was crippled by shame. And, and, and one day he said to me, um, I had a dream. He said, I hate Donald Trump. I hate Donald Trump so much. And he said, I had this crazy dream that I was talking with Donald Trump. And he said, I woke up in the morning and I laughed because in the dream, Donald Trump was quite a good guy. He said, isn't that funny? And I just said, can't you see that God wants to say something to you through that? And he said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, you and Donald Trump have a lot in common. And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, Donald Trump is one of the most hated men around the place. And so are you. And Donald Trump has been shredded by the media. And so have you. And Donald Trump has done some terrible things, and so have you. But I said, in your dream, you saw that there was more to Donald Trump than the things that he's done. You saw that there was some goodness and some beauty in there. And I said, when I sit here with you, I see goodness and beauty in you too. And it was this beautiful moment of God just kind of lifting the veil just a little um, on his shame. As time went on, years, I worked with him for a long time, and then one day I just said to him, I think it might be time for us to have some prayer where you can forgive the people that have really hurt you and you can really repent for the things that you've done. And he was ready for that. So we had a time of prayer. That was all good. The little shame voice whispered to me, what if it doesn't make any difference? You've had such a big build-up. And Martin came in, my husband Martin, and we spent some time praying with him. And then I went to see him a few weeks later, and um, I said, how has it been since we had the prayer? And he said, for six years, every day in the prison, I've had panic attacks. I get triggered around what I've done. And so I break out in a sweat, and he said, it becomes unbearable. It'll be something on TV, something I read in a book, something I think, but I have these panic attacks. And he said, since we prayed, I've not had one panic attack at all. And he said, for six years, I have these dreams, these recurring dreams, where I see my victims, and in the dream, I'm completely alienated, and everybody has their back turned to me, and I feel alone, and I feel ashamed. He said, since the prayer, I had a dream, and for the first time in six years, my victims faced me and their families, and they said, we're ready to move on. I just thought it was the most beautiful story of God's setting free, God's deliverance from shame. And um, it was so profound for me, challenging my own shame as I worked with him. I could go on and on. There's story after story of, of this, this awful shame and, and, and what God wants to do. But I think what's interesting is just, lest I kind of keep it to what's happening with the men, my little shame voice plays up too when I'm in prison. And there's those days when psychologists have a lot of power at the prison and the little voice says to me, you're just a chaplain and they're psychologists, you're not really doing the real work. Um, I had one instance where I was invited along, that we have these reintegration hui, and I got invited along by this guy, but we sit there and he had to introduce everybody around the table, and all his family are there, and he introduces his case manager, and he goes, this is a case manager, and he's done heaps for me, and he's a really good guy, and he opens doors for me, and this is Alice, and she's the chaplain, and I often just want her to fuck off. <laughs> And he said, because she always challenges me. And then in my head, he said it with a smile, like he'd invited me to be at the hui. I'm picking, I was probably okay, but it, the voice is, you're just the chaplain that everybody wants to F off. And it's amazing how a situation like that, which is kind of funny when you step back from it, but then that can grow arms and legs, because then it's, well, most of the prisoners actually want you to F off, and you're actually far too challenging to most people. And actually, why do you even bother? Because they're not going to change anyway and shame can so easily have its way.
And I think for us, looking at that snowballing effect, just like it did for Eve, and just like it does for us, where one thing just becomes another, then it gets bigger and bigger. So what started off as a joke with a prisoner, who'd actually invited me of only two people from the prison to come to his hui, becomes, you're just the dumb chaplain that everybody else, everyone just wants out of there. So the second point, evil distorts our self-image and we get stuck in shame. So the third and final point, um, evil ruptures relationships, distorting the truth about others, um, but they are also made in God's image. So we've got Adam blaming Eve, we've got Adam blaming God with the woman that you put there, we've got Eve blaming the snake, and so often the manifestation is hatred of a person, judgment, or a refusal to um, forgive. So being led by the Spirit in prison is bringing that alternative voice of forgiveness and grace and non-judgment. And that's not always a popular message to be bringing to people who are really caught up in hate. Um, And I think, um, for me, and I could tell stories about where others have, have made real breakthroughs around some of their own hatred, but actually it's been a really big challenge to my own prejudices because sometimes I sit there and I hear a story and I just think, oh my goodness, you know, and there's something that rises in me and gets a reaction in me. And there was a story where where something um, I was told, and I went to my supervisor and I just said, I just don't know if I can work with this person. It feels too awful. She said, just show up and hear his story. So I showed up and I said, why don't you just tell me your story? And it took him about three hours to tell me his story. But by the end of it, I had such a compassion for him because where he'd landed was a product of a whole lot of trauma and hard stuff. And so I think there's been that real challenge where evil has wanted to rupture my ability to be able to see the image of God in others. And that's something I've constantly had to work at. And that's something we all need to work at when people irritate us. We need to ask God if we can see the image of God in the other. So, that's what we've looked at. God, ourselves, others. And obviously, it's as relevant for us as it is for anybody. Um, The beautiful picture of God in the garden trying to pursue Adam and Eve and saying, where are you? You know, that God pursues us even when we try and run away and hide. Um, So I just want to finish with looking at Romans 8, 5 and 6. Um, So starting at verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Basically, we become whatever it is that we pay attention to. Whatever gets our attention, and the biblical narrative is God trying to get our attention. A life led by the Spirit is a life is life and peace. And so we all have that opportunity, whether we listen to those voices that tell us we're just that dumb person that everybody wants to F off, and then live in that shame, or we can choose to trust God's call. And for me, I have to trust the fruit to God and live in faith and hope. So I think just where I want to land it today is being led by the Spirit, 
is obviously knowing the big picture of what it is that God wants for us, but it's about learning to be attentive to the narratives that we are listening to about God and about us and also about others. Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, think about such things. So let's um, fix our minds on what is on God's heart and let's hold tightly to the truth of who God is, of who we are, and of who others are, which is made in the image of God.